Welcome to another edition of Unplugged. As we look back on our first foray into Friday night football for 2023, and the more things have changed this year, the more they stay the same. Last year, 5-1 and one, heading into round seven against Port Adelaide. We led 14 to zip in that game last year. Ended up getting beaten by a point. Five and one this year, playing Port Adelaide, who ironically were coming off a win against West Coast in Adelaide on both occasions. Led 14 zip and got beaten by just over a kick this time, seven points. And it's funny when we talk about curses, clearly there is a, a bogey side in Port Adelaide, but in over that journey against us, they've beaten us by a point, two points, four points, four points, six points, seven points, and 13 points. So we've had a look at them every time but just don't win close games. It's kind of the opposite of what's happened when we played the Gold Coast, where we, we sort of beat them in every close game. Uh, Port Adelaide sadly beat us in every close game. Look, five and two is something that we would have taken at the start of the year, but it does feel like we did leave four points potentially out there against a side that respect where it's due, did play better than us. I thought in many respects we were fortunate to get within seven points, but in saying that, if you lose a game by that margin, there are plenty of chances for you to have won it, and I'm sure we can reflect on moments in that last quarter and moments after quarter time that had we just done them a little bit differently, some brain fades and and little bits and pieces, but we regroup, we go to North Melbourne, the injury news gets a little bit better, but at the same time, um, obviously we still play the waiting game on some of that, but uh, we go down uh, we take on North. We're in third position. Life's still pretty good, provided we can right the ship from here. Nick, I'll uh, welcome you in. Um, quarter time, it was probably difficult to see what was going to happen. We looked in complete control. Um, Port Adelaide had it looked like they were just scrambling to stay in the game, but unfortunately, it turned pretty quickly. Yeah, it was. It was one of those ones where it just felt like early in the game that that Port weren't quite there. They hadn't. They hadn't turned up. You know, we we were switched on from the start, but they potentially weren't. And then they kind of quarter time they re- regrouped and and kind of clicked in the gear and they stepped up and we didn't. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think we played all that badly. And and we want to talk a little bit later on about how the sky isn't falling in. You know, see a lot of kind of drama and Saints panic and this is what happens to Saints teams when they you know, start a season well and then it all falls to pieces. But I don't think that's what's happening. Um, you know, it, it is frustrating at times, but I think that, you know, we can, we can clearly see that there's development with this squad. We're growing, we've got young kids, we're competing hard. We're becoming a pretty good side. And, you know, I I know that it's disappointing. We've lost that game. Like you said, we, we had our moments and, and potentially other weeks we win that game. Uh, Clearly Port have the wood on on us at at the moment and have done for, for a while, but uh, you know, we, we didn't play that badly. We probably shot ourselves in the foot, but like you said, credit where it's due. Port were probably better when it counted in those moments, and uh, yeah, it is what it is. We move on. Uh, as we welcome Charlie, who's filling in for Aaron, who's up in Queensland this week. Yeah, I don't know how you go on the gut feels, uh, Charlie, but it was one where from the point that Port Adelaide hit the front in the second quarter, at least from my point of view, even when we did poke our nose back in front, there was just that gnawing feeling in the back of your mind that I didn't think we were going to win the game. I just didn't have that feel about it, that, that maybe they were more likely to take their chances than us. Did, did you sort of get that vibe? Or I'm all gut feels when it comes to watching <laughs> the Saints. I think like the stats don't mean anything to me. And you're right. Like I, I, I watched the game a bit on, on delay a bit. And so that first quarter, I'm glad that I knew what the score was at halftime and then mm. went back and watched the first quarter because I think that would have set up some unrealistic expectations because <laughs> we looked 
on fire <laughs> and we had a good connection and we were moving well. And like you said, Port Adelaide, they just seemed a bit fumbly. But then that all changed around. And I don't know. I, yeah, it was the easiest to swallow loss that I can think of in recent memory. Like it stings because it would have been another feather in the cap that, oh, yeah, we knocked off our bogey team. But at the same time, I think there's good losses and there's a lot to be learnt from losses. And I think that this is one of those games where we didn't lose too much in the actual result. You know, we're up against what many believe will be a top eight team who play a great contested game. And they sort of showed us the level we have to get to consistently. We got a, you know, reality check with Collingwood and we acquitted ourselves quite well. You know, Carlton was exceptional. And I think now we've just come back to the pack a bit, which is good though. I think that's, that's better. It sort of gives you a, a, a clearer vision of where you're at. Yeah, I think certainly um, the Collingwood game hurt a little bit less. I, I agree with what you're saying. It wasn't a bad loss in that you weren't shattered, but it felt like there were slightly more mischances in this game, whereas the Collingwood game, we were kind of scrambling to stay in it and made a really late dash, but it would have been a miracle to win it. Whereas obviously against Port, we hit the front in the last quarter. There was that key moment. I thought Jack Steele played a great game, but we kicked two in a row, hit the front, won a free kick in the middle for holding the ball. Then he got run down and it swung it back the other way. Um, Obviously, Battle made two mistakes, the stepping off the line, and then in the second quarter, the eight-metre pass to Wilkie. And just little things like that uh, where we let, I think it was Drew free in the middle of the ground in the third quarter, which set up that Rioli goal. Kind of felt like it was just a few little things. But, but yeah, I think you summed it up, Nick, that it it was kind of, one good side losing a really tight game to another good side. And that sucks because mm. you want to win them. Mm. But it didn't feel like, oh, geez, where did that come from? We played a shocker. It felt like we just didn't quite execute against yeah. a good team and they just got us. Well, there's all that discussion around the five-day break. And I know mm. statistically it doesn't sort of bear out that, you know, we were covering the ground just as much as we have been, just as quickly as we have mm. been. But having watched the replay, it's it's the it's the things that they don't measure. It's the you know you think about the way we've attacked you know uh, the contest tackling in you know in groups, the way we do second and third efforts, and I think that is kind of where the five day break the five day break came into play. Just a little sharpness was taken off the edge, and I think that would also contribute to the men- uh, the mental fatigue that you know Josh Bat- like Josh Battle and Cam. When was the last time you remember Cam Wilkie <laughs> making a mistake? Yeah, like it just doesn't happen. <laughs> And so I would just attribute that down to like, it's just a little bit of mental fatigue. You can only stay so high for so long. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, look at the things that, that they did better than us. And and like you mentioned, it was kind of those those second, third efforts, those one percenters, the tackles. Um, but, and that certainly hurt. Like you look at the impact that Jason Horn Francis had in the in the second quarter. Like he was so clearly best on ground in the second quarter that it wasn't like, it wasn't even a competition. Um, but, just the things that they had over us, which was just they were being a little cleaner with the ball. You know, they looked after the ball. They kept possession mm-hmm. just a little bit better than we did. Yeah, they didn't have the the bad turnovers that that we had. I think the turnover numbers were were about the same mm-hmm. over the course of the game, but we had some bad ones. Obviously, you talked about those mm-hmm. battle ones uh, in D fifty, and I think Ross kind of referred to them in, in his press conference. That was probably the difference for the game. Is those. You know, you can turn over the ball in the middle. You can turn over the, the, the ball, you know, in your forward line. But as soon as you turn it over in, in defensive 50 and you get a shot on goal, like that's that's a yeah. killer. And and ultimately that's that's what killed us is those little kind of decisions, um, the composure with the ball and potentially without the ball as well. You know, they, they beat us in um, 
disposal efficiency just. They beat us in efficiency inside 50 by quite a way, by 9%, which is, is doesn't sound yeah. like a lot, but it is a lot. You feel you feel like that that stat is mostly mm. made up of the last quarter, though, don't you? Yeah. Did you guys get flashed yeah. the Richo yeah. years? It's like, what are we doing? They're just yeah. bombing it. Well, we, or, or we'd win it back on the wing and kick it like Mason would, and then kick one straight to straight to them, but but to Burn Jones and a couple of others. Where and maybe yeah. I mean, who knows on the five day break? Because as I said, I think they were just better than us, and we were still running. So I'm not not the Port fans had listened to it, but I'm not offering that necessarily as an excuse. But I reckon it was probably the the one time this year we've truly missed a, a focal point. Um, be it either Max yeah. King or even Caminiti with that big body, because in the last quarter when we were frantically bombing it in and bombing it in and bombing it in. It was Finlayson who was behind the ball taking marks mm. or, or one or two of their other players. And we just needed a contest. Probably one or two contests might have been enough there. And Cordy, Cordy was off the ground at that stage as well. I mean, just look at what Dixon was doing at the other end. He did not yep. have a great game, but did two or three mm. things that a big man does in the forward line. And he brought energy, you know, mm. like he had that intimidation factor. Like you, would, mm. you could see that we were second guessing ourselves when it was in the air, when he was around. And I think, yeah, you're right. We just lack that, you know, Max. Well, it's a good thing we have a Max King type <laughs> in the wings, but that's solely what we lack. Yeah, and um, it was just just one or two of those, those little things, which made it frustrating. And um, it, it is remarkable this Port Adelaide record. We actually won the first five games we played against them. So the overall record is twenty four eleven. So if you do the maths on that, it's twenty four to six. Since we won the first five, so um, yeah, we, we always talk about how bad our record is against Essendon. Our record against Essendon is actually about fifty-fifty. It's just they seem to beat us in annoying times, but we have a truly bad record against Port, and it's um, it's very frustrating. But I had a lot of people message me after it saying, "Oh, that was a great game. You're both playing finals and all of that sort of stuff." And to me, it was frustrating. But other people obviously thought that mm-hmm. you know it looked like both sides were in in pretty good shape. So. Obviously, what you—I mean, last year we were in this exact same position, and it went pretty ordinary for us after that. But as we said last week, it just feels a bit different. It's just a bit more resilient. So, Ross's presser after the game—I think a lot of us were feeling the same way: frustrated, pissed mm. off, missed opportunities. But God, it's nice having Dad back, isn't it? Yeah, like, <laughs> he, like he's just got a way of kind of deflating any kind of that Saints panic that we all have. And just sort of making it seem really simple. Yeah, it was like four defensive entry mistakes. There's things to work on. And then I thought it was a really great message to the players where he said they're just so coachable. You know, mm-hmm. like that's dad giving you a pat on the head and saying, it's all right, we'll get him next time. <laughs> yeah. But it makes sense. Like, you know, if he was saying get the ball deep, but, you know, the players didn't really use enough kind of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, agency to say, well, you know, if there's a target, <laughs> like there's a dot, dot, dot after that. Bit of it's coaching, a, it's but... a funny way of putting it, actually, because, yeah, I mean, I've my sort of routine this year, um, being a little bit busier, is that the day after a game, so I'll take the dog for a walk in the morning, and that's when I'll listen to the, the press conference uh, just mm. on my phone. And that was the case Saturday morning. I just thought I'll do the little debrief. And, yeah, I felt much better after the walk. It was almost like, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Dad. Um, you've reassured me now. You put my mind at ease. That's okay yeah. now. So <laughs> very good. Before before we get to the good part, because I think there were some good some good points from the game as well and things that we should we should touch on. But you, you mentioned kind of the lack of that tall target and, and needing the Max King type or the Anthony Caminiti or, or whatever it is back. Are you guys surprised that we haven't, that we've gone in so far this season with just Rowan Marshall in the ruck and not have the ability to push him forward with 
you know, a Tom Campbell or, or someone kind of being that secondary ruck that can still contest in the middle of the ground and, and you can push Rowan forward. He can be that, you know, secondary target if we need. He can be the focal point if we need, you know, like we needed late in the game with, with Cordy off. Um, are you surprised that we haven't gone with a, a two-ruck setup? It's, it's that age-old so debate around Rowe that he's always been a much better player when he has it his own way. So when he gets to ruck full mm-hmm. momentum... But obviously, when he played with Ryder, um, that was a really good combination with one going forward. So obviously, Campbell and, and Heath aren't Ryder. So you'd be sacrificing a little bit in that combination if you put them together. But a little bit surprised. But in saying that, look, it's worked. I think Marshall's had a terrific year. I think he'd be top three in the BNF. But but yes, I think for the reasons you stated, there might have been a temptation, particularly because memory for Caminiti is not quite like for like. Caminiti is a slightly mm. bigger focal point. So that, that might have just changed things a little bit. I just think the the issue is Rose a victim of his own standards. And if you're going to bring in a second Ruckman, when Rose resting forward or on the bench, that guy's got to cover the ground like a midfielder like Rowan mm. does. And I just don't know that Tom Campbell, with all respect to Max mm. Ethan, Tom Campbell, I just don't know that they're aerobically up to it. And if you look at the way we're defending at the moment, like it is just a moving grid. If you've got a guy who's lagging or, you know, especially if it's the last quarter and, you know, he's not running as hard, it could stuff up our entire structure, defensive structure. I guess the thing that, that worries me as, as well as not having that ability to push Marshall forward is, yeah, he's, he's a beast, you know, around the ball, around Those the ground. Like he's Didn't he have like yeah. four tackles he's, or something? He's oh he's God. amazing. His ability to, to A, win the ball, but also contest. And, and like you said, those, those tackles, yeah. like the way that he throws his entire body into a into a, <laughs> into a guy's five ten. Someone, someone's <laughs> going to get someone's going to get really hurt. Yeah, he's not quite that. Mumford, and um, then he's not going to maim someone, but he's um <laughs> he's not far away. So. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I mean, it, it does feel a little bit like we've gone into into two games the last couple of weeks against Collingwood. Yeah, they had Billy Frampton as their number one ruck, and then last week against Port, where they didn't really have a recognised ruckman at all. Mm. Um, and we haven't quite gotten that level right in in the ruck that it should be an, an element that we dominate. And I know that we won the I know that we won the hitouts, but we didn't win. I don't think we won the hitouts to advantage. We certainly didn't didn't um, use that advantage in personnel to our team advantage, if that makes yeah. sense. And, and I guess that's just another another you know, I, I guess idea around putting in that second Ruckman that can really take advantage at the at the stoppages and Rowan can still be that ground level beast, whether it's, you know, in the centre of the ground or, or up forward. But, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing is that, that we have options. We have flexibility. And Rowan Marshall is clear, like you said, clearly you know, probably top five best and fairest, probably higher than that at the moment. He's having, he's having a fantastic year. Uh, but it would be nice to see some more, I guess, traditional ruck production. And interesting, obviously, this week he'll take on uh, Todd Goldstein, but we'll take a look at the votes as a good segue uh, out of that uh, looking to this week's game. And we'll talk a little bit later on about the personnel coming back soon and what that all means. But I actually gave Marshall three. I thought he was clearly our best player to get 26 possessions, 28 hit outs, something like 10 tackles, multiple clearances. Uh, was a really influential player. Sinclair, as always, solid. He got two votes and five ones. Uh, an apology to Gresham, who I thought played his best game for the year. Um, but I gave a vote to Clark, uh, Massive last quarter as well. He had 10 and a goal in the last quarter to um, to help keep us in it. I thought Owens was our most dangerous forward the whole way through the game. I thought Steele played pretty well despite making a couple of mistakes. I thought Wilkie 
uh, was, again, solid again, despite a couple of mistakes. And, and Wanganeen Miller, uh, um, probably his most composed game for a while. So he gets a vote as well. Aaron's on holidays, so uh, we'll slot his votes in later. But Nick, what have you got? Pretty similar. I gave two to Marshall. I, I did think he was our best player. The only reason I couldn't give him all was kind of that we, we need some ruck dominance and we just, we're just not getting it in, in that particular element. But I thought he was our most impactful player around the ground. I have one vote to a bunch of guys uh, like you, Steele, Jack Sinclair, I thought was, was great again. Mitch Owens was dynamic and it didn't matter if he was in the forward line, if he was in the middle. Uh, they pushed him in the ruck in the second half as well. And I thought he was great. I mean, this guy is just going to be a star and I love watching him already. Hunter Clark he just keeps going from strength to strength um, and getting better every week, which is great to see and, and kind of goes back to that discussion we've had over the last two years that this this kid just needs continuity. He just needs to play every week and he's going to be a really good player. Um, Cal Wilkie, I thought, redeemed himself after potentially his worst game in Saints mm. Colours last week uh, or, sorry, the week before against Carlton. Jade Gresham, like you said, uh, really good signs. I think uh, his best game in, in quite a while, five inside 50s and eight score involvements um, and just really busy around the ground, down forward, you know, kept running, uh, looked like he is starting to, to lower his eyes a little bit when he's got the ball in hand as well and not just blaze away, which is promising. And, and Mason Wood was was just solid again. So a, a vote to uh, to Mace. Charlie? Uh, well, got? I had to be pedantic, Nick, but that adds up to nine votes. You've got one on the table. Are you just saving that? Is that a holdover? <laughs> I think you gave uh, Steele two, but you credited him with one. Oh, I did two. I did two. Two to Marshall and Steele. No, no. you're right. Two to Marshall and Steele and then one to the Okay, <laughs> great. All right. Just want to yeah, make sure we don't want any wrong. controversy at the end of the year when you hand out the uh, prestigious <laughs> When Steele and yeah, Marshall tie and, vote, and that vote yeah, matters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, much like you guys, I thought uh, Roland Marshall was the best on ground. Um, I thought Jack Sinclair does Jack Sinclair things. He's sort of in that Steele category now where it's like he has a 30-touch game and you're like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll give him a point. Um, I thought Jay Gresham, like in the same way Charlie Dixon was the sort of fire starter, Jay Gresham and Hunter Clark, but I thought Gresh almost won the game for us. Like he just looked incredibly dangerous in that last quarter. And I just love the way he has responded to the criticism, you know, that he's had the last few weeks. I still saw him like screaming for handballs and stuff, but at least he was celebrating teammates' goals. So I think that's really, he just, look, for all his flaws, He's a very unique player yes. and I think he's hard to match up against. Like, you know, whether he's in the midfield or whether he's in the forward line, like I think he's worth, he's worth persisting with. And I, and I, I'm willing to take, you know, a few sort of drawbacks, Stevie J style, you know, or <laughs> Milne style even, you know, going for something ambitious, and not pulling it off for the, for the moments of magic you get. Um, one to Steele, uh, one to Clark, who I'm just so excited to see you know, what he can do. He's he, he he's so laconic in his style and those loping kind of steps. You sort of feel like everything's laconic with him. It's mm. sort of, he's like the cat mm. in the hat. He just, he's just got this <laughs> body that sort of bends in all directions, but he's so hard at it. And again, you know, he really um, almost got us across the line. Uh, Mitch Owens, how quickly have we just taken it for granted that Mitch Owens, like, were reliably you know, take three contested marks and kick two goals a game. And he hasn't even played 20 games. Like mm. the kid yeah. is awesome. Like he's so exciting to watch. And I just sort of felt like he just rarely gets beaten. But I did notice that even he, his second efforts were a bit off, which is a real kind of, you know, I think that if there's a bellwether for the side, then if Mitch Owens isn't like going for three or four, you know, <laughs> efforts in a, in a contest, then something's wrong. And then Naz, who I think is just, you know, he's just, 
he's just bubbling along nicely. I think he's going to have a massive game soon, but you know, he did some really great things. It's, <laughs> it's amazing you talk about Mitch Owens in, in that way. It, it is amazing that, that we look to a, a second-year player who played, what, seven games, six games last year, and that when, when we're struggling in some area of the ground, we're like, oh, yeah, Mitch there. <laughs> and he's just a star. Like, it's like we're, we're not winning the hardball in the middle. Mitch will go but in he the also middle. Has the, he'll, he'll win a hardball. He's ball. got the face of a 10-year-old, and he's yeah. just so happy to be out there. Like, but I remember um, he Will, should, on, the, yeah. on my, the other podcast, Will said he's a bit like the dude in Shazam. Like, he's just like a kid <laughs> yeah. with a grown-up body. He just do all these amazing things, just loving being a superhero. But in that third quarter, when he, like, the start of the third quarter, when he kicked that goal I remember we'd, we obviously hadn't scored for ages and it was frustrating and we we're picking dumb options and I remember I can't remember who it was ran inside 50 and I'm like why isn't he having a shot and he's chipped it up to a one-on-three or something with Owens and uh, screaming at the TV and then Owens has taken the mark in the pack and yeah. you're like oh it's fine Mitch has got it he's, he's taken the mark and he sort of got us out of trouble a few times um yeah and it's just one of those well, things look, that you shouldn't be able to rely on him to do they look they look yeah. to him now as the outlet kid, yeah which is really interesting because mm. You know, when King comes back and we can maybe move memory up a bit more, mm. then we suddenly we have like Mason Wood, you know, Mitch Owens, Tim Membry as three outlet kicks. Mm-hmm. Across, if you put them across the ground, like it's really, really mouth-watering. I mean, fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our next special guest, we, we've spoken to a couple from this era that, that's in Kilda's side of the early 90s. One of those we spoke to was Gordon Forward last week. We now turn our attention to a player that did a number of roles, tagging, back pocket, through the middle, did a, a heaps of sort of one percenter, no-nonsense type jobs for a number of coaches, and that is Kane Taylor. Devonport, the youngster. Comes to the members' side, where the fans are situated. Nearly the mark to Harding, it is a mark. And he's played his heart out. Plays on quickly, gives a hand pass to Laurie. Laurie's kick. Low cart mark. But precious seconds are wasted as Lowe takes it over the boundary line. Morrissey coming on, Platten being taken off. What a rare occurrence. Well, I think he hurt himself a few moments ago, but Kane Taylor has done a great job on it. 13 seconds left and counting down Jenkins off he's off he handballs into the space it could be very costly Anderson what can he do two seconds it could be over it's over victory to the Saints what a game our special guest this week is Kane Taylor, recruited from Dingley, played 76 games for the Saints from the mid-80s through until the mid-90s. And he had four coaches, by my count, possibly more over that journey, such was the changing nature of times with the Saints. But started in 86 under Graham Jelly, obviously Daryl Bulldog. There would have been Alan Davis in there briefly, then obviously Kenny Sheldon and into Big Stan at the end of that in 1994. But Kane, thanks for, for jumping on with us this week. No, no, no. Great to uh, join you guys. Going back to the start, I'm always curious when players were zoned to clubs. Obviously, St Kilda had had a rough run through the late 70s and early 80s. Did you know all along that if I make a fist to this football career, that's where I'm going to go? It's just inevitable that uh, that that's going to be home if I make it? Uh, Look, I think originally when I was at Dingley, uh, Dingley zone was uh, Melbourne. Okay. So yep. there was always, I, I guess, a belief that if I uh, I was uh, going to uh, get in at some stage, it would be through uh, through Melbourne Football Club. But um, yeah, I uh, I received a a call uh, 
through John Beveridge uh, many, many years ago now, and uh, I was asked to come down and train with the under-19s at St Kilda, so took that opportunity and, um, yeah, ended up uh, staying there for the uh, for the remainder of my uh, well, VFL, AFL career. Kane, talking about Johnny Beveridge, what does is, what is that process look like? I mean, we, we've spoken to a lot of people that have their own stories about uh, Johnny Beveridge and, and that sort of thing, but how did that work for you and, and what was that process like? Yeah, look, well, there was a recruiter that had come down and watched a uh, game at uh, at Dingley and um, and uh, he'd obviously passed on some recommendations. I received a call from John and I think at the time I was only, uh, I think I was 16, would have been in you know, year 10 at school still, so um yeah, I was uh, a little bit unsure what to expect. Um, went down, had a um, a training run, and uh, trained for a couple of weeks there, and um, and then uh, went uh, went back to Dingley and got a a call about two weeks later saying, "Look, we'd really like you to come back and and have a run in the under 19 So um, I went back and um, and played a game. I think my first game was out at uh, Victoria Park against um, sorry against Collingwood and. Um, yeah, I performed reasonably well there and uh, was, was asked to stay on for the remainder of the year. Yeah, it's, it was fascinating when we talk about those various stories about how different the game was then to, to now, obviously, when everybody sits around and watches drafts and, and those sorts of things. It had a bit more of that suburban footy feel, I imagine, where you'd get invited down to train, as you say, and then uh, get invited to stay on. Can you take us through the, the process of, of 86 and, and getting that debut against the Kangaroos? You kicked a couple of goals in that game and stayed in the side for about the next month, which, which obviously would have been a good boost for the confidence. Yeah, yeah. Look, I um, I I think the the, the big difference uh, now is that you know they have the development squads and you know they have the stingrays and and those type of um, clubs which you know they I guess you don't have that feeling of belonging like we had back when we had under nineteens based around clubs. So you know when when I went down to St Kilda, I really felt part of the club, um, and I think that's probably. The challenge more for for the younger kids these days, um, going through that that same system. But um, yeah, look, I, I spent a couple of years. Um, well, well, I spent the the next full season playing under nineteens. I I played under nineteens uh, in that that first season and, and actually did my shoulder and ended up getting a reconstruction when I was seventeen. Um, at the end of that season, we played in a final against Hawthorne at Waverley in the under nineteens, and then so spent the next season in the under nineteens. And um, the following year, I uh, I did uh, a, a pre season with the with the senior group. Um, played the first two games, I think, in the under-19s and then was asked to come and play um, a couple of reserve games. I think I played three reserve games and then, um, yeah, it was uh, it's probably a little bit different to what happens nowadays where they get your parents on the phone and ring them up and <laughs> make a bit of a hoo-ha of it. I think I, uh, I think it might have been Paul Tomei or someone who said, oh, I think you, uh, I think you might have been picked this week and... Um, Anyway, sure enough, I, I, I listened to uh, one of the programs and uh, and I think I found out through that in my first game and, and then got a call the, the next day from um, uh, from uh, Grave Jelly. So, yeah, very, very different process back there. But, um, look, it, it was, it was a, you know, a massive thrill. Um, I played my first game against North Melbourne, as you said, uh, under lights at the MCG and, um, yeah, was lucky enough to kick... Uh, 
kick a few goals and uh, and perform okay. Kane, so in 1990, that's when you really sort of cemented your place in the team. You played 17 games. There was one game in particular I want to talk about, which was round six versus the Hawks at Moorabbin, because this is the moment I think I really fell in love with the Saints. I've been going, but I just remember the atmosphere at Moorabbin at the time, having not beaten Hawthorne since 1979, and you played a role shutting yeah. down Johnny Platten. Can you just take us through your memories of that game? Yeah, look, I, I do. I, I, I remember I was playing you know, um, predominantly tagging roles back then and um, you know, played on... Um, on Johnny Platten that day, I'd, you know, I think I'd played on Dacos and and Craig Bradley and the like. So, like, was getting used to doing a lot of running. But um, I, I think that day out at Moorabbin, you know, it was a full house. And um, after the game, you know, we, we, we uh, and I can't remember exactly how much we won by, but um, getting over the line and having the crowd Three run points. on the game, I remember I was quite exhausted. <laughs> quite exhausted and... Um, yeah, you know, trying to get off the ground was a challenge in itself back then because you just had you know supporters and that um, that were uh, that happy with uh, with what had occurred and um, trying to get back to the race was um, as I said a bit of a challenge when um, when you were just trying to get a bit of air back in the lungs. But look, it was just it was an amazing atmosphere playing at Moorabbin. Um, yeah, something that I'll always uh, always cherish. Um, yeah, that that ground and the, and the supporters and yeah, when we did perform well there, um, yeah, there was nothing like it. Eighty seven, you changed uh, you changed your jumper number from fifty four to twenty six. Um, what what brought that about? And, and did you have any say in what that number went to, or did they just give you at the start of the season? They just gave you the number and said, "Get on with it." Yeah, no. Look, I think they were the, the jumper I got. Um, uh, in the first year, it was number fifty-four. I, I think they were running out of jumpers there, so uh, that was one that I uh, <laughs> I got handed uh, in my in my first year. And then, obviously, the next season, they they allocated the jumpers. And um, I think Daryl Cunningham had just finished up Fader. He'd been um, wearing number twenty-six. So, like, yeah, I was. Um, and look, I had a lot of respect for for Daryl and um and Joffa, his brother and um was was more than happy to take on number 26 and look I wore that out um throughout the rest of my playing career looking at that 87 season as a young player could you sense the the change that was unfolding obviously Daryl Bulldog came back to the club you had Plugger have that unbelievable breakout year with a Brownlow and a Coleman Nicky Winmar arrived at the club you had young players like Burke and and Lowe uh, who had arrived as well was there a feeling that something was brewing and and that would lead to what happened in the early 90s with the club playing finals? Yeah, probably personally, not so much for me at that stage. I think, um, yeah, one of the challenges, and I think it's, you know, for all, for all young players coming through and having played my first game when I was, was 18, probably emotionally whether you're ready to deal with, you know, I guess playing with, with grown men. And, 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 you know, football back then was probably... Um, yeah, you, you didn't have the supportive structure around you that they've got nowadays. So, um, yeah, it probably took me a few years to to learn how to deal with that. And um, so, I think you know, I'll be, if I'm honest, I look back and I go, I really struggled in those those early early periods um, under Baldock. Um, but look, obviously, playing around guys like Lockett and and Winmar, Frawley, uh, Lowe, Burke, Harvey, um, Grant. Yeah, there were some amazing names, and you could just see that there was something starting to uh, to develop. And by the time Kenny Sheldon came on board, I think we really had a good, strong belief that we could 
I guess, changed the direction of where the club had, had been for so many years um, and, and start playing finals again. And so, you know, when we were able to make finals in that uh, in that first year in 91, yeah, that was a really big thrill and probably, you know, I, I guess, you know, we, we talk about it as a group every now and then when we get together and say, you know, it's probably one of those ones that could have been if, if we'd have got through that first game because I think that year, 91, was a final six and we finished third that year and we, you know, I think Hawthorne and, and West Coast played off in that grand final and I think we'd, you know, we'd beaten both those sides relatively comfortably through through the year. So um, I think there was, you know, uh, you know, not not having played finals for a long period of time, and we did we 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 got a couple of injuries through that game that probably um, probably cost us, and um, I think we got beaten by seven points in the end by Geelong. Kane, you um, mentioned before that you know you had to play these tagging roles, so you had to learn how to run. Um, there's running, and then there's Rob Harvey running. What was it like, you know, yeah. seeing Rob Harvey build his tank? Because you would have seen him arrive as an eighteen-year-old. Like, just we've heard stories, but what was your impression yeah. of his running capacity? Yeah, well, look, we we probably didn't realise until sort of you know maybe three four years down the track that um, I guess how how impressive this young kid was because um, he used to actually do a lot of his training and that. Um, I guess out of sight of the club, <laughs> so he would finish a training session on a Thursday night, and he'd go and do a ten k run after that around the streets of Moorabbin. And you know the physios and and medical staff used to have to jump in their car and go go looking for him because um, you know they were concerned about you know he'd had a few soft tissue injuries and things like that. So you know he was probably overtraining, but. I've yeah you know, I've done a little bit of coaching with with um, the juniors and that, and I, I quite often you know use halves as a an example of yeah you know, I guess the the key ingredient at that level, and it's hard work, and I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone work harder than Robert Harvey on the training track. He you know he trained exactly as he played, um, and just pushed himself to the limits. Okay, and I guess just off the back of that question, someone else who I think yeah, people are so interested in because you know, had this perception of who he was on the field and, and was so quiet off it in, in Plugger uh, that not a lot of people know the real Plugger. What are your, what are your memories and, and um, I guess what, what was your perspective of being you know, behind closed doors with, with Tony Lockett? Uh, look, I, I think to this date, Tony still shies away from... I guess the limelight, and it, it's not something that's ever sat, sat well with him. So, yeah, I, I guess the uh, all the hype that went around um, with, I guess, you know, the extraordinary player that he was, um, he was a very different person behind closed doors. Um, yeah, I, I personally had a very good relationship with, with Plagger and got along really well with him. Um, yeah, he was very humorous. He loved having a joke and um yeah, and a bit of a bit of fun and a good time. He was he was a wild character back in those early days, there's no doubt about that. But um yeah, certainly he's yeah, you know, he he matured and his football just went from, you know, bigger and better things. Um and yeah, obviously it was I guess tragic losing him to the swans. Um, but I think it's something that, that probably had to happen. For his career, to I guess, um, and and what he what he ended up achieving. Describe 
92, 93, 94, I guess that those last few years of your career, you, you played sort of about half the years in 93 and 94, obviously missed a fair chunk of 92. You played a crucial game late in the season against Melbourne, which we had to win to make the finals, and we did that. But um, I guess your reflections being sort of in and out of the side over that period. Yeah, look, in 92, I had a, uh, a groin Injury where I missed, I think I missed about 12 weeks and uh, the first week back that I came back and and played, um, I re-injured it. And back then, I guess probably they... You know, they dealt with things a little bit differently medically than what they do nowadays. And I was then put straight in and had a, an operation, hernia repair and that done and was back playing within four weeks. So, you know, I probably missed a good 16 weeks of that 92 season and then was able to play a few reserve games, break back into the senior side in, in the last game of the year and only to be um, to be dropped for the for the final, I think Gilbert McAdam came back in and um, and replaced me that um, in that game. But look, you know, I look back now, and I I think back then, as disappointed as I was, I I, I understand now. I was probably underdone, having missed so much um, football during the year. Um, and you know, a player like Gilbert was probably the obvious choice to take into uh, into a final with. I guess the X factor that that he had. Kane, I want to take you to to ninety three, and obviously in the last, I guess, couple of weeks, we've heard a lot about it, given the the thirty year anniversary of Nicky Winmar's stand and and that Winmar McAdam performance at at Vic Park. Um, what are your memories of that day? I know you weren't in the senior squad for that game. Were you playing in the in the reserves game? Before that, or, or were you there that day? Like, what, what are your memories of of that period? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm pretty sure I. I... I'd either played in the reserve game or I I'd, I was injured. But, um, look, I guess Victoria Park um, was just one of those um, grounds where it was extremely – it could be, you know, quite intimidating. Um, and I won't go into the detail of the Collingwood supporters and what they used to do and that, but um, as you were walking in and out of the races. But – it was one of those um, one of those grounds where, um, as I said, could be quite intimidating to for the for the the team to win on that day in the way that they did, and for Nicky to obviously lift up his jumper, um, yeah, because of I guess some of the the taunts and things that um, that he he'd received was it's obviously you know, an extremely iconic moment now in um, in history and. And one that's probably changed the course of you know, the way that people think and 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 deal with these situations. So look, you know, I think it's a it's a, it's a very proud moment, I guess, looking back um, from a, a teammate's perspective, because you know he took a stand and um, and it certainly um, made a big big difference with the way that things are dealt with these days. Now, obviously, Danny Frawley had a huge influence, no doubt, during your time um, as captain uh, over that that period. And uh, tragically, obviously, we lost him a few years ago. The club have been, you know, paying respects to his legacy with camps up around Bungaree and, and Ballarat in, in recent times. And a lot of past players have, have had the chance to, to speak to the, the group. And I understand you've you've had that opportunity. And, and what's that been like, obviously, being able to get back and, and reflect on those memories? Yeah, look, we we spent a lot of time up in Ballarat, and you know, you know, Spud was a very close mate, and um, we you know got some amazing memories 
you know, with him and, and, and up around that area. So to go back to, you know, to Bungaree where we spent a lot of time on his farm and uh, and around that area was was pretty special. And to be able to talk to, I guess, the current playing group now about what he meant to us and, and I guess how special he was and the legacy that he left, um, it was a great opportunity to be able to relay that to them. And, um, yeah, I, I think the group was really appreciated you know, appreciative of myself and David Grant that the day I was there, um, being able to relay that message. And so, yeah, look, I mean, we still miss Danny every function we have. It's it's one of those situations where he's the type of person he was. You just keep expecting he's going to walk in the door at any stage and, you know, with his big smile and, you know, he'd have, have you know, some practical joke up his sleeve. But um, unfortunately, you know, that, that doesn't happen anymore. But we, we, we loved him dearly and he, he has left an amazing legacy at that club. Kane, 1994, obviously the club was going through a bit of a transition period. Obviously, Plugger was leaving the footy club. Um, and round 19 was a loss uh against Brisbane at Waverley was your final game. Did you know that that was going to be the end of the, I guess, the AFL road for you? And um, I guess your your career since then, you've had a pretty pretty uh, successful local footy career since then. Yeah, look, I mean, I had no idea. And I think this is one of the things as a young player is that you, you know, you, you think it's going to go on forever. But um, I look back and, and again, at the time when Stan Elves, had said that they were, um, you know, they weren't going to require me during the next season. Um, I was extremely disappointed. But um, again, I probably look back now, and in hindsight, I understand the decisions that that had been made then. Um, I'd been around for you know quite a number of years. No, I'd, I'd, I'd had a number of injuries. I hadn't sort of played full seasons, so it was probably a logical choice for Stan to make at that point in time based on him coming in and and I guess put it really putting his his stamp on the club um and moving into that um into that next phase. Um but look, you know, extremely disappointing. But I was I was very lucky that when I finished there I I went on to a club, you know, the Springvale Scorpions, which was, you know, in the VFL, VFA back then and um was lucky enough to play five years there and, and played in four premierships over that period. So, yeah, that, um, I guess that allowed me to walk away from football feeling relatively satisfied with, I guess, the success that I'd had. And I was lucky enough to, you know, captain three of those. So it was um, it was a, a nice way to finish my, my football career, I guess. So we've asked this question of every guest that we've had on, uh, this season, particularly given it's the Saints one fifty, as a, a final one from from me, reflecting on the the hundred and fifty years uh, from from your point of view, what 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 does St Kilda mean to you? What comes to mind when you, uh, I guess, when when you're asked and when you think back about St Kilda? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I'm probably as passionate about the club now as I was when I was playing. You know, I, I you know I, I go on, I watch you know each game at. At the moment, I get along to you know to, to, to every game that I can. I've got a young eighteen-year-old that you know loves coming along and watching with me. So um, you know, as far as passion goes, um, it's um, it's it's still there. There's no doubt that it's um, that there's still a passion for the club. 
it's been one of those clubs, and I, you know, it's quite amazing that the the camaraderie and the, I guess, playing group that has stuck together over the years, based on the limited success that we've had, is quite. You know, quite amazing. Um, we have a you know a really really good past players group, and uh, run by Sean Ralph Smith now at the moment. And um, you know, we had a function on Friday night where we you know we all catch up and then go and watch the game and that together. So you know, although we didn't have premierships and reunions and things like that to celebrate, um, yeah, we still regularly celebrate our time together, and I think that's probably. Yeah, I guess the the special thing for me about the St Kilda Football Club is that they've always been a yeah a, a very strong bonded group of of um, people that have um, been involved from from players to officials to coaches to um yeah, yeah to everyone to supporters. Kane, you were a great part of a, a fun time for the Saints as they were growing through that that late 80s and into the early 90s, made a, a terrific contribution to the club. Love to hear the passion in past players like that and, and thank you very much for uh, joining us this week. No, I appreciate your time, guys. Really good to chat with you. Kane Taylor, a 76-game Saint. We turn our attention to North Melbourne back in the Sunday twilight slots and Kilda do play or, the, or Sandringham play reserves at Arden Street just before that game as well. So a chance for, for fans to sort of catch the double. But look, we know the expectations going into this game would be that St Kilda would bounce back. They'd be both internal and external expectations. North Melbourne started quite well this year. Obviously, they won their first couple against both the Western Australian teams who are clearly struggling, but the win against Fremantle in Perth in, in particular was full of merit. Obviously, their last five weeks, they've slipped back to the pack, as, as is evidenced by their percentage, sitting at 66.5. They're 15th on the table. Oh, heavy defeats to uh, Melbourne last week, Gold Coast the week before. Brisbane have also got them in, in recent times as well. So, obviously, uh, Luke Davies-Uniki, who missed last week, is a very important player for them. So, if he plays, that, that bolsters them. But Look, it feels like we've got enough to have them covered. But in saying that, they've played some reasonable football in patches. You look at their Good Friday game against Carlton where they were very competitive. But I think the expectation, Charlie, would be that uh, we we find a way to right the ship and bank the points and get to six and two. If this was last year or basically any year post-2012, mm. I would probably be going, <laughs> oh, God, like we're going to drop. This is a danger game. But mm. I feel uh, I feel um, I feel comfortable with what's going to happen. Whether or not you know it's a percentage boost or whatever, I'm not even thinking about that. But mm. Ross will not let this one get away from us. Like whether we you know grind it out and win by a goal, that I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> I just think it's important that we regroup and because, like I said, this is a, 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 a days gone by a, a classic danger game. They've got a master coach. You know they've been mm. smashed in the media this week. I mean, Kane Corns is doing us no favours by writing an article every three days <laughs> leading up to this game. I mean, I know we're going to get to that so St Kilda, but like oh, this has all yeah. the makings of that. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary, Nick. I think, um, as Charlie said, normally you'd be more worried than we are. Um, mm. Whether that's a false dawn, I don't know. But but I, I sort of agree with that sentiment that you feel like we'll handle it. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's that if it's that comfort that, that will handle it, I think it's more, you know, like we spoke about earlier around 
uh, I guess the the understanding of of where we're at mm. and and having that having having dad back in the building, like <laughs> you said before, Charlie. Like like I'm just comfortable with where we're at, and it doesn't mean you know we've said it ad nauseum over the last kind of six or seven weeks. It doesn't guarantee wins, mm. but you can see that this team is going in the right direction. You can you can see by the way they they line up, by the way they compete, they attack the ball, they attack the man, that they are doing the things that they need to be doing. Doesn't mean they're going to win every game, but you know, we're getting we're getting closer to that point that we were at 15 years ago where we were becoming not just a competitive team but a dominant mm. team and the, the hallmarks of this team are, are similar in the, the contested ball, in you know, kind of slowing down and, and making smart decisions. It doesn't always happen. We've got a young team and an inexperienced team. We're missing a lot of guys. We know that. But I feel like I'm just more comfortable with where we're at that yeah, even going back to last week and that the last few minutes were frustrating, the last quarter was frustrating, but two minutes after the final siren, I was like, it's okay. Mm. Like I can see where we're going and, and I'm okay with that. We're going to drop some games here and there. We've won some games that we probably shouldn't have won or that we didn't expect to win. On the flip side, we are going to lose some games that you probably expect to, to, to win. Um, but, you know, I'm okay with that. And, and I, I have faith that the building blocks are being put in place now for the next five or six year challenge um, that I'm okay. Like, obviously I want to come in and I want to smash North because other teams smash North and they're a rabble at the moment, but I don't feel like we have to, like we have to win. If we want to play finals, you have to win games like this, but I don't feel like for our future, like we're so reliant on, on beating North anymore. I don't know. It's just a weird feeling. Think back to like, you know, the mirage of last year and the wins we had in the first, you know, eight rounds and, you know, people saying, how is this different? Well, it's different in how we play. Like it's different mm. in how we've mm. got our wins. And what you're talking about, Nick, I think is there's a consistency of effort and performance that you expect to see each week. So mm. if you're looking at your opponent and you're like, okay, well, they are here on the ladder. If we bring that consistency of effort, um, then we should win. Now we come up against a, a better team or a team that's around us on the table, then it's a 50-50, but... I know what you're talking about. It's that, you know, you feel like when you turn on the TV or at the game or whatever, you, you know what you're going to see from each line in the team. Yeah. yeah, and you're less worried about watching for that reason. As you say, like you look forward to watching them play because you're like, okay, they're going to bring what they need to bring. The, the intensity and effort will be there and hopefully you get the result. I mean, it felt like against Collingwood that we, you know, we didn't deserve to win the game because they'd outplayed us, but we just kept coming. And against Port Adelaide, it, it felt like, it's a weird one that we, again, we didn't deserve to win, but in a lot of ways we should have only because we, we just kept hanging around and created opportunities. And a lot of people have said, oh, the hallmark of St Kilda is they'll be hard to beat. And I think that was evidence in those mm. two games because mm. we looked beaten, but we were hard to beat and hung in there and gave ourselves a chance. And, and that's going to keep us competitive enough to have a good year and hopefully play finals and, and build from there. So, um, yeah, there is that trust that, that feels like it means something. Now, it's it's not like the Essendon game last year where we thought we could trust and then they ripped our heart out and, you know, it mm. took us all year to recover from that. Um, it doesn't feel like there's one of them in them. It's, I mean, you, you mentioned kind of that that knowing what the expectations mm. are and, and knowing what you're going to see when you turn the TV mm. on or, or when you walk into the ground and, you know, to their credit, like there's there's a lot of detractors for Andrew Bassett and Simon Lethleen around the decision that mm. happened late last year with with Rats and, and whatever. But the message has been from day one that we want supporters and members 
to know what to expect and to know what they to, to know what they're going to see each week when they watch a game of footy mm. that the players are going to turn up they're going to be ready to go they're going to be prepared they're going to be structured and disciplined and like you said we're going to be hard to beat and so far that's what we've seen that's what we've seen so you know, I, I think I think we're in a we're in a decent. State. So the word out of the club in terms of the injuries. So reasonable chance that Zach Jones plays VFL this week for Sandy Webster. I think will be available. Whether they pick him in the twos or the ones, uh, you'd sense a run at Sandy would be on offer for him. Uh, then you look at obviously Caminiti's a week away. And Josh Gavalik has been pretty good with his mail, says that Max King likely to be available next week. Now, we ran a poll on on social as to how you approach that. So next week is a, a rejuvenated Adelaide. Admittedly, they had a really tough loss on, on Sunday, but um, a rejuvenated Adelaide at, at, at uh, the Adelaide Oval as to whether you bring him back or whether a player of Max's standing has to go through the reserves. Um, it feels foreign to put a player through that, but... At the same time, first up, interstate, cauldron, good team. I know we kicked six there last year, but um, look, we'll probably talk about that more on, on next week's podcast. But, but what's your gut feel on how we would manage Max's return? I just, I don't know. The the, the, the overall sentiment from listeners and, and with that poll on, on Twitter was that majority want him straight back into the, into the ones. Yeah. And, and I understand the want to see him back in the ones. Uh but we're not talking Jack Steele, who's missed three weeks or four weeks. We're talking Max King, who really hasn't played a legitimate game of football since the end of last season. Mm. Uh, you know, he played obviously match sim early in the season. You know, the last game of football that he that he played was a, a match sim in February. You know, this is a long. He's been a long time out of the game, uh, and he's going to be rusty. He's going to be rusty. Um, and shoulders and are hard I just don't to come back mm. from at the best of times. It it is it is, and to get that feel again, especially when. You know, your arms and, and you know, marking power is such a big part of his game. Like, he's got to be confident in his own ability to to move those arms and all those sorts of things, which you can do on the track, but it's not the same as getting out there in a game against, you know, a fullback and, and that sort of stuff. And and I just think from what Ross has been showing us, like, there is selection integrity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, for to, to bring back a guy who hasn't played in kind of 12 weeks, um, would just send the wrong message to the rest of the team that you need, like everybody needs to earn their spot. Um, we've seen guys, you know, Jack Billings, who historically would be, you know, best 22 every, every week mm. um, has got to bide his time in, in the twos. And uh, there's a bunch of guys that have had to come back through, through the twos. And I just, I, just, I don't see Ross saying, well, screw that mm-hmm. for you, Max King, you're, you're coming straight back in the ones. Um, I just feel like there's at least a week for Sandy there. I think that, if you listen to that press conference again with Ross, he's using very selective language. Like he talks mm. about Max and he says that, you know, he's a great player, but I haven't seen that much of him. I don't know him that well. Mm. And me, that is code for, well, I have to see what I've got here and I'm not going to, you know, roll the dice and just throwing him straight back in. And it just, it just seems logical. Just let him pay, play two quarters in the reserve if he gets through that and he plays three quarters or a full game and just let him build up to it. Like Caminiti was doing a good job. You know, I mean, we were four weeks ago. The debate we we're having is how do we fit Max mm. King into the side? Like, does it upset the apple cart? <laughs> I don't think we need to panic now and rush. I mean, he is a generational player and could mm-hmm. be the key to so much for our future. Let's not turn him into like another cozy where we just, you know, injure him too early. Like, let's just take our time while we can. It's still early enough in the season 
that I think, and we have a Caminiti and Tim Membry's back. I, I just don't see the point risking it. And Nick, you mentioned Billings briefly there. I wouldn't be stunned if he was a sub this week. I think there's an outside chance mm. they might go down that path. Obviously, Bytel, there was no Sandy last week, unfortunately, but obviously Bytel coming off a blinder the, the week before would be a chance. Windhager has been the sub a couple of games in a row, so he either has to play or not play, if that makes sense. You've either got to pick him outright or send him back to Sandy. I don't think you can sub him three weeks in a row. So to me, it would be Billings or Bytel maybe into that sub role. Uh, a few questions before we get to the awards and wrap up. Uh, Boba asking, does the poo need a rest in the twos? We had that conversation last week, ironically, and it was probably the most tired he's looked, to be honest. Um, mm. So whether Almost they... a couple of hangers. Like, he's yeah. very close to taking a couple <laughs> of hangers. Yeah, and unfortunately, he's a beautiful set shot at goal. I don't know what he was doing at the start yes, of the second yeah. quarter when he tried to go the hero around the body thing. Yeah. A big moment in retrospect, too, because we would have gone four goals up at that point. But um, a few others, uh, Tim asking a similar question, whether we persist with Cordy for one more if Max isn't ready or, or if you go, Nick, as you say, with the second Ruckman. My gut feel is I'll stick with what has worked. Um, not that Cordy, I mean... Yeah. Ross has mentioned him in every press conference. Every yeah. yeah. Although you can't be getting one possession, I, I must admit. And, and look, I've, I'll defend Cordy because he's being played out of position and he's fighting hard, but you've probably got to give a little bit more than that. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. he, he's, he's been, to his credit, he has been an important part of the structure. Mm. And I think you know what, what Ross has been saying is that he's kind of sacrificed his own game to allow guys like Butler and Higgins to, to play more of their natural game. Um which you know is if he's playing his role, then then that's all you can ask. But it is it is interesting to see a guy have one touch of the ball and then get mentioned <laughs> in the in the presses, like you said. Um, but you know, we found our Zach Dawson you know, again. He, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's cuddly. It's, it's cuddly. He's Ross, an oversized right? Robin Eddie, I think, and that's uh, that's more <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's Cudley Ross. He's he's throwing credit, you know, where it's where it's due. He mentions every assistant coach, every press conference. He mentions yeah. that Zane Corey. Probably not going to mention you know, Nick I Walsh think... though. And I, I would have sense. No, so, probably not yeah. at this stage. Um, Jack, Jack asking the question, what's our best forward line look like with all players available? And, well, we'll, we'll give a link to uh, your mob, nickzerohanger.com.au. There's a pick your team there and have a look. I mean, we can we could pick it a, a million different ways. I mean, it's going to have two smalls or at least three or two or three smalls, Higgins, Butler, Gresham, and then King, Membry, and, and one other uh, in that lineup. I guess the, yeah. the, the question there is what happens when, when all those guys are there? Yeah. What happens with Filippo and Owens? Because you can't, you can't. Drop no, them. exactly. I mean, but they're also not taking up those forward spots. Do they? Do they take someone else's role in the middle? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Owens, you know, at the moment playing kind of as a second ruckman, but it then brings us sort of a, to another question. I'll ask both of you if it was the schoolyard, and because Graham mm. Smith asks this, the uh, former South African captain, he says, um, <laughs> "Who is higher on the pecking order out of these two? So if these two guys were both fully fit." And standing up against the wall in the schoolyard, are you picking Caminiti or Hayes? Jack Hayes, that is. That's a really good versus because we've probably seen the same sample mm. size of both, mm. haven't we? Um, Hayes does more yeah. ruck work generally. Yeah. I just worry. Yeah. I think, in fact, Nick and I, we were, we were having a, a WhatsApp chat earlier today and I was saying mm. that, like, Caminiti as an athlete, 
he's more of that kind of, you know, um, streamlined, covers the ground well. Like he doesn't look – for a young player, he has not looked tired at the end of any mm. game. He looks mm. like he could go another well, two. He was, a, he was a midfielder for a decade right. kind of before he got drafted. I think he kind of shot up and became a key forward. And my impression of Hayes yeah. was that um, he had endurance, but he was, wasn't particularly quick. So I think it would just depend on how they fit into this game plan. My instinct says Caminiti at this stage. Mm. Um, just because I think it depends on the role. Yeah. Right? Well, but yeah. they're all role players. Kamenetti's more moment. that pure forward. Yeah. Yeah. Kamenetti's more that pure forward. Hayes is more that bigger body that like crashes and bashes and and can go in the ruck for a. Uh, yeah, but I don't want to take or... Owens out of the ruck. I mean, no. He's, no. He's, he's no awesome. I love him. Yeah. He's doing so well. <laughs> had like four hit outs. It's great to see. It's great game. to see a great to see a hundred ninety centimeter dude just run over the top of yeah. these seven footers in the <laughs> ruck. <laughs> and it helps his forward craft. I think you go into the middle, you get involved, then you go back forward. It's it's good for him i think in all aspects yeah. of his game uh the final yeah so so to yeah. answer is we we don't have no <laughs> no no again horses of courses maybe but i mean jack hayes had a, another setback unfortunately yeah, with um i don't know how you do a hammy when you can't walk as it stands but um well it's yeah. like how did dan mckenzie do a do a calf and he was yeah exactly it's like what are you doing you should be on the track but um yeah now he's yeah like Someone mentioned that you could create a Frankenstein out of the working parts of Dan McKenzie and Jack Hayes and just see what you can come up with there. But Jack um, McKenzie, I like him. <laughs> I like a number 54 on him and get him playing. Yeah. Uh, then we look at the Jason Blake Award. I'm probably going to um, give it to this. I don't think I've ever done it the same guy two weeks in a row, but I think I will this time. Uh, Liam Stocker. Um, had him in our best at three-quarter time. He had a pretty quiet last quarter, but um, I think he, he does most things right. His ball use is pretty good. Um, defensive effort sound, um, and he's been a, a really valuable inclusion. And unheralded, we haven't mentioned him yet, which is exactly what this award is about. Um, Charlie, do you have one for us? Uh, the Jason Blake Award. He's, this is my, so far, my quarterly year Jason Blake <laughs> Award is Seb Ross. Like, I just... Mm think his efforts in not just in terms of his performance but his leadership like he's so vocal out on the ground and I just think that he's got this new lease of life with Ross you know and you watch the replay and he's involved in everything you know and he's trying to break the lines and he's really given everything until the end I think there is still that section of Saints fans who just don't like Seb and they probably will never like Seb but I think you're not watching the games if you're having this year because he's doing everything yeah, I'll die on that hill. He's yeah. been terrific. Yeah, I, I agree. They they were the two that I mm. had noted down. I was going to give whichever one. <laughs> <in the same. laughs> um, but I've given I've given it to Liam Stocker mm. before a, a couple of weeks in a row early in the season. So uh, I agree about. Seth. I think he's he's kind of playing career best footy in a different role mm. that he's spent most of his career playing. Um, and it is it is like a breath of fresh air to to see him running around doing his thing. He's, you know, I think his disposal efficiency is the highest it's been in a long time. Um, he's running a bit. It looks like he's running on top of the ground. And, and you know, he's a really vocal member of the team as well. Like we know that he's been a leader of a bad team for a long time. Um, but now it's, you know, he's a senior member of what is looking like it's a much better team and if not a, a good team. Um, and it's, it's 
really not. Like, I actually really enjoy watching Seb Ross play and, mm. and looking like he's having fun. Without again. having the stats in front of me, I'd hazard a guess Seb Ross has captained St Kilda more than anyone currently on our list. So that includes Jack Steele and Wilkie mm. because he was filling captain for Geary who missed like two years. He would have captained right. 40 or 40 odd times, I reckon. Seb Ross uh, won't be credited as a St Kilda captain, unfortunately, but he's he's done it a lot over the journey. Nick, to avoid you having your uh, thunder <laughs> stolen, you can go first at the Shannon Knoll Award. Uh, there's so interesting one. I, I'm going to go Ben Patton here, and, and I don't like doing it because I, I I like the roles that Ben Patton plays for us, but I just feel like the last couple of weeks he's let those standards slip, and we know that he was yeah, a real lockdown small defender for a period of time. He had that that really bad broken leg and, and he hasn't quite been the same player ever since then. But it did feel like the first month of the season that he'd been rejuvenated under Ross in that kind of extra wingman type running half back, running wingman type role. Uh and had spent, yeah, all summer training with the midfield group. So there was it did feel like a different Ben Patton. But I do feel like in the last couple of weeks we've seen a bit of those um your old habits die hard kind of poor decisions, not really watching some awareness issues. Uh, and I just feel like if he can if he can clean a few of those things up, then yeah, he can be a really important part of the squad. And I just wanted to... He'd yeah, be getting nervous seeing Jimmy Webster's... I think so. Uh, ...on the injury list. Yeah. The week's getting shorter because I think that spot's <laughs> yeah, up the grabs. I think so. I mean, I like Ben that, Patton, that's right. but I think Jimmy Webster brings, yeah. this, brings the same, if yeah. not more, than him. That's, yep. That's right. And, and I think the other one, that just a, a special... Shout out to those Saints fans that booed Jason uh, Francis on the on the weekend. I think just lift. Like, mm. I don't think we need to say any more about it, but just get better. Yeah, it's unfortunately it's that sheep mentality we've seen. When we saw it earlier in the year with with Collingwood when when they played them, and you, you hear one person do it, and it's like, oh yeah, fair enough, but it's just dumb. Um, doesn't serve any purpose. Makes us look a bit silly, and could have done without it. Yeah, that's right. So exactly. If, if, if the goal was to put him off his game, well, it didn't work. So maybe we <laughs> that strategy next Yeah, time. booing our midfield structure maybe. But uh, <laughs> Charlie, which way did you uh, go? Uh, so this is going to be controversial because he hasn't had much of an opportunity. But I, I really think that Windy, I, I hmm. think he's. I think what happens is he comes on and he plays the role. And so but we know from last year that he can be electric, you know, and he's just mm. like he's a super athlete and he's got like amazing awareness and stuff. And maybe it's the way he's been deployed. But I just would like to see him come on and just like be the game changer, you know, whether that's in the midfield or as a pressure forward or something because he's got all the capability in the world. But if that's not going to happen, then I think he needs a run in the twos just because, you know, he like he's been overtaken by – by Mitch Owens this year in terms of like the excitement around the youth and he's a gun and he needs to get like back, back into the starting lineup. And if he has to go back to the twos to find a bit of touch and get a bit of confidence back, then, then I think that's, that then that should happen. Yeah. hundred percent. Yep. No, I think that's spot on. M- mine is a guy and I feel sort of bad giving it to him. And I mentioned we something. We all feel on... bad. Yeah, <laughs> maybe sorry. we should not do this award. I mean, the show, guys. This, uh, award true, true. I, I mentioned this guy on Twitter and a few Saints fans went to his defense and I can understand why because he's a genuine match winner. and I think he's a very good player. Um, but, but Jack Higgins can at times frustrate. Um, he's had a, a few blinders this year, obviously the Essendon game, the Gold Coast game. He was important against Collingwood. He's forward pressure good against Carlton, but I just feel that if he could just tighten that gap between his best days and his worst days, his worst days can be a little bit 
um, you know, arguing with umpires about free kicks, spraying shots at goal, having shots when he shouldn't and those sorts of things. He's a mercurial match winner who absolutely has to be on our side every week. There were a lot of people last year saying, oh, he should be dropped or leave him out. Clearly best 22, genuinely a match winner, but I'd, I'd just love it if he could tighten up that gap between the best and the worst because he can be a bit frustrating on those yeah. bad days. Um, yeah, the problem for, for him yeah. is he clearly doesn't have a head, according to the umpires. On, on no, Friday well, <laughs> that freaky at halftime. I mean, the, the only one worse than that was the one he didn't get the week before against Carlton. The week before, um, yeah. Yeah, right. but... Um, yeah, and then he, he finally got a free kick in the last quarter and, and kicked it out in the full, unfortunately. But, but yeah, that's a... It's one that I'm kind of complimenting him at the same time because of how good he can be. Uh, that's so St Kilda. Probably a bit harder, Charlie. You did kind of mention it with... Um, with Kane firing up the Kangas, but he's been doing that in fairness all year. So Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, I think just the whole losing the port, you know, like it, it felt very St. Kilda. <laughs> and like Friday very, night. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just, it just, it reminded me a bit of the game in uh, 2021 where we had to keep our finals hopes alive. Port were looking wobbly. They mm. came to Marvel, empty stadium. We were in form and we just, couldn't get it done. And it wasn't like a particular very similar game. Yeah. Loss, but we just couldn't yeah. get it done. And it was like, mm. oh yeah, that 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 fell so St. Kilda. But let's mm. hope that, you know, much like you shouldn't award, <laughs> this becomes less relevant as the year goes on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there aren't too many others, I don't think, Nick. Obviously, hopefully we're not talking about one next week. But yeah, I think that that probably sums it up. Just getting the Friday night opportunity. We didn't do a lot wrong, but didn't get it done. Mm. So uh, yeah, that and and I think the Jack Hayes one. I think you mm-hmm. know, kind of starting to get a bit of a, a head of steam and players coming back. You know, started with with Jack Steele, and obviously as we get closer towards Max King coming back and, and Tim Membry's come back and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, to to have another kind of serious injury to, to Jack Hayes, and I think everyone was kind of looking forward to to see him get back out there mm-hmm. kind of mid year and, and see what he could do. Um, you know, we were all looking forward to that and. Um, just to see him go down again, just just feels just feels like it's so St Kilda. Yep, I think that's a fair summary. And fingers crossed, um, whoever does come into that sandy side, be it Jones or, or Webster, can can push on and give us some options for next week. We look to the Kangaroos on Sunday. Hope you've enjoyed this and all of the podcasts. You can catch uh, our full catalogue wherever you get your podcast. Give us a review uh, if you are if you can be so kind. Thank you to Charlie for for stepping in this week. I'm sure it won't be the uh, the, the last time with our bit of a revolving door that we have at the moment. But you got to get me back on after a win for once, please. That's <laughs> right. Like I've well... done two losses in a row now. Like get me on for a win. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully it'll I... be the last. Uh, Saturday in September. Oh, well, no! Did I put the yeah. moz on it? <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, that would be so St Kilda. But uh, we, we look forward to catching <laughs> you again next week as hopefully we reflect on a, a solid day at the office against the Kangaroos. Go Saints.